This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. As we begin this morning, I echo what Pastor Jeremy expressed last week. My prayer is for us to know for certain the real Jesus, and we are here in week 94 of uh, our journey to discover the real Jesus uh, through the Gospel of Luke. So um, hopefully you've got your Bible, your field journal ready, and uh, we're going to jump in in verse 7 in just a moment. But by way of context, we are now in the final week of Christ's earthly ministry. He's been teaching every day in the temple, and there's nearly a universal consensus among the religious leaders that he needs to be silenced by any means necessary. That's where Pastor Jeremy took us last week as he unpacked the tragedy of Judas's treachery in uh, making a deal uh, with them to betray Jesus into their hands. So let's pray, and then we'll pick up in verse 7. Bow with me. Heavenly Father, you have sent your Son into the world, the Word made flesh, to reveal yourself to us, your children. So please send your Holy Spirit upon us now that we may encounter Jesus Christ in the word which comes from you, for he alone is the author and object of this text and our gracious Redeemer. Oh, that we would come to know him and to love him more intensely and to come to the happiness of your kingdom. Amen. Verse 7, chapter 22. Then came the day of unleavened bread. It's all coming down to this on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. Jesus wanted to celebrate the Passover one last time with his disciples in order to reframe it as the type and shadow that it actually was. It will find its ultimate and fulfillment in Christ's passion. The significance of this day in the life of an observant Jew is really hard to overstate. So he sends two of his most trusted men to make the arrangements. It's Thursday afternoon, and all begins this night. Verse 9, they said, where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, behold, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. So this is the right question to ask. A lot goes into this observance. But Jesus tells them to look for something out of the ordinary, a man carrying a water pot. This would have stood out since this was much more common to see a woman doing. But I wonder why this fellow would be bringing extra water to the upper room. Makes me think about Jesus washing everyone's feet later that evening. And I also wonder whose house it was. Tradition and some textual evidence points to the possibility that this was John Mark's family home. Uh, John Mark happens to be John the Evangelist, who, um, who uh, wrote the first, not the first gospel in order in the scriptures, but the first gospel, uh, and was a missionary along with Peter and Paul. More importantly, I want to point out that it's likely that Jesus was being vague about the location because he knew what Judas was up to. And he was intent 
on keeping this important meal with his disciples. Remember, Judas had already made the arrangements to betray Jesus and was looking for the right moment. We know this from the text from last week. Luke 22, verse 4. Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money, and he consented, and here we go, he watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. So the, the upper room and a meal um, kind of sequestered off by themselves would have been a perfect opportunity for the religious leaders to come and arrest Jesus. But Jesus didn't want the interruption. So he says, I'm not, so he's, he's talking to everybody. He says, Peter, John, go make these arrangements and here's, here's how you'll know where to go. You'll see a guy walking. So Judas wouldn't have any way of alerting the authorities. He would have the opportunity, though, to betray Jesus' whereabouts later in the evening, but not before Jesus had spent this time with his disciples. Verse 11, now go tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, Jesus had gone before them in this assignment. I love this. It was, the, the fellow knew and was ready for this. The room was prepared. It was just as Jesus had described it. And Jesus goes before us in our assignments. And I love that. Sometimes obedience seems vague or complicated or even impossible. But our job like theirs is to simply obey and marvel at the sovereign hand that goes before us too. Maybe you've been there. Just remember that he loves you and you matter. Verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. I'm grateful for Pastor Don revealing uh, how this uh, was set up on Palm Sunday. In verse 15, he said to them, I have earnestly desired or uh, with Desire I have desired. It's an emphatic statement. He, he was very intent on this. I have de earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again. I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So the hour has come. Christ's passion has begun. And unlike the Passover that they were commemorating, death would soon envelop Jesus. What the Egyptians suffered and the Hebrews avoided by slaughtering a spotless lamb at the first meal and every year since, Jesus would have to endure as the Lamb of God. And Jesus earnestly desired to share this moment with them because he had lived his entire life focused on this singular mission that his father had sent him to accomplish, to live a perfect life for the sinful lives of God's children, to die the death that God's children deserve to die, to suffer and bear the wrath of God that was due to God's children, taking their place, becoming their substitute so that they could be redeemed and forgiven and restored back into a relationship with God, their, their creator, their father. That relationship had been ruined by sin. But Jesus explains, for the father himself loves you, from John 16. The Father himself loves you. Why? Because you have loved me 
and have believed that I came from God. Jesus would accomplish this. And he was so confident that he tells them that he won't eat another meal like this one until all things are accomplished in the consummated kingdom. This must have been puzzling to them, but it wouldn't be the strangest thing they would hear that night. Verse 17, let's continue. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. The Passover meal is broken up into four parts. It's organized around four fillings of the chalice, almost like we would think of a toast um, at a banquet, something like this. The structure is taken from a fourfold promise found in Exodus chapter 6. Cup one. They would start the meal with cup one. They would raise it from Exodus 6, 6 through 7. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Cup two, you would raise and you would say, I will deliver you from slavery to them. Cup three, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. And then finally, cup four, and I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So Jesus begins this meal with the pouring of the first cup, and at the outset is framing in their minds that this is going to be a very different kind of Passover meal. He blesses it, gives thanks, and reiterates that everything changes after this. And by the way, the Greek word for giving thanks here is the word Eucharist, it's where we get the Lord's table this Thanksgiving meal. Verse 19, and he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So at some point, about midway through the meal, Jesus picks up the bread, he breaks it, and he serves them directly. The words used imply a personal distribution of these broken pieces to each person. So remember, he pours the first cup and he says, take this and divide it among yourselves. Well, now he takes the bread and he breaks it and he starts handing pieces to each of the men, people present. He blesses it again and he gives thanks, likely saying something like, blessed art thou, O Lord God, King of the universe, who bringeth forth bread from the earth. And at this point, it's not too out of the ordinary until after taking the bread and breaking it, he says, this is my body. And this statement would have never before been uttered during a Passover meal and was undoubtedly shocking for them to hear. It's a monumental shift from the focus on a sacrificial animal into something entirely different. And it reinforces a conversation that they had had with Jesus when he fed 5,000 recorded in John's gospel, chapter 6. Truly, truly I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I will give 
for the life of the world is my flesh. So the Jews begin to dispute among themselves, saying, well, how can a man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus replies, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. That's a tough passage. In fact, it's, it's tough for them. It says that after this, many left. It was a hard saying. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, are you going to leave me too? And they said, where are we going to go? Who else has the words of life? Their minds must have been racing. Wait, what? If, if he is the bread and he is breaking it and he's serving us and we're eating this, then he must be the object of our redemptive hope. The sacrificial imagery here is impossible to miss. This new ordinance that Jesus is instituting and that they are experiencing is completely overshadowing the Passover feast they are familiar with. And yet it still retains its unmistakable connection to redemption. Just as the Hebrews associated their deliverance from Egypt with the Passover meal as a divine ordinance, so do we, as followers of Christ, now associate his redemptive death by regularly partaking of broken bread in the communion meal. Verse 20, he continues, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So now we're back to the wine. This is likely the third cup after the main course that corresponds with the third promise. Remember the third promise? I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. So Jesus stuns them again saying, this cup that's being poured out. So he takes the bread, he breaks it, and he hands it to them. Now he takes the wine from the pitcher, and he pours into each cup. And he says, this cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. He's drawing a direct allusion to the words of Moses in Exodus chapter 24. And everyone in the room would have made this connection. Moses was ratifying the covenant of God with his people fresh out of Egypt. Exodus 24 verse 8. And Moses took the bread and he threw it on the people. I'm sorry. Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people. He said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And they saw the God of Israel, and they beheld, and they ate, and they drank. Notice a shared fellowship meal together. Jesus is almost certainly calling their attention to another scripture in this moment as well. He's apt to do this, to draw from the law and the prophets to demonstrate who he is. So Jeremiah 31, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. 
I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is the new covenant. Jesus, the greater Moses, inaugurating and ratifying a new covenant between God and his people, sealing it with his own blood in just a few short hours, memorialized in the wine, and commemorating it with a meal. For us in this moment that we share together, if we open our eyes, we too can behold God and truly live. The divine and the human meet in the humanity of Jesus. That's what a sacrament is a material point of contact between something physical and something spiritual, the reality of that. What Jesus is proclaiming here is something new, a greater deliverance. No longer will something that is slaughtered only temporarily cover the sins of mortal humanity. Now someone slaughtered will live again and provide life-sustaining energy and eternal life for all who believe. What was happening here from the apostles' perspective. Why did this matter? Because this signals the end of the types and the shadows. And invariably, the Jewish system itself, the Mosaic law was fulfilled in Christ, including the moral law, the Ten Commandments. Don't miss the implication here. We, like them, by nature and example, are sin-stained and desperate to find a way to be good enough. And our efforts result in arrogance and self-righteousness And then, inevitably, guilt and despair. Because we can't. Jesus changes all this, and this makes Jesus glorious. When we are in him, established by our baptism into his body and energized by regular communion with him as the church gathered, he who meets the demands of the law on our behalf continues to do so by grace, making us glorious in the Father's eyes. Peter reminds us, for Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous in order to bring you to God. And then from the great exchange in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is why what Jesus instituted for us on that Thursday evening matters today. In his first letter to the Corinthian church, the apostle Paul revisits this scene that we're observing from Luke's gospel. And he instructs the more casual and unruly Gentile church that they were to act in love and unity toward each other in the context of the Lord's Supper. They were to discern Christ's body in the communion meal. 1 Corinthians 11, for everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment to themselves. And that is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. I grew up so confused about this. Fearful, actually. On the one hand, communion was an infrequent practice and considered a mere memorial. Your tradition may have been different, but in many cases, that's the way it was for me. 
On the other hand, if I had unconfessed sin in my life, I'd best make it right before I took it. Or better yet, don't take it. That is such bondage. And it robbed me of the joy of this conduit of grace for years. To discern the body of Christ, recognizing that we are the body and that we're energized by his body, is to arrive at a right estimate of the character or quality of the thing. That's what discernment means. To arrive at the right estimate of the character or quality of a thing. So the, this, Paul's telling us to discern this, to understand this. Come to the right estimate. The unworthy manner that Paul's speaking of here is not a lack of perfection or unconfessed sin. It's being irreverent when we come to the table. It's failing to contemplate on the glory of Christ and his work and his person. The unworthy manner is being false. I'm worried more about what other people think than what God thinks. About having it all together. Think Ananias and Sapphira. An unworthy manner is thinking I am worthy. The reality is this meal doesn't mean much for those who feel like they have their act together or for the self-righteous. But if I'm weak, if I'm sinful, if I'm humiliated, if I'm broken, if I'm needy, it is for me. Because Jesus is calling us. And he calls us to repent. What is repentance? Repentance is simply turning to find in him what I've been looking for somewhere else. He always bids us to come to the table. Jesus' own words in Revelation chapter 3. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to the church. I stand at the door and knock. Respond. And I will come in. And I will share a meal with you as a friend. This fellowship is for people who believe that Jesus is present here, that he is enough, and I don't have to be. That at my worst is when I need him most. In this meal, the disciples discover a new shared identity that transcends nationality, religious expression, and every other barrier that divides us. Verse 21. But behold... The hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they begin to question one another which of them it would be who was going to do this. At this very supper, Jesus releases Judas to go and do what he was scheming to do. The Gospel of John sheds more light on this in chapter 13. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And when he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. It was well known by Judas that Jesus would be retiring soon to the Mount of Olives. Since the Passover observances were nearly complete and he couldn't coordinate the arrest in the upper room, he knew where they would be going next. How do we know? Just one chapter earlier in Luke 21, Verse 37, he records that each day Jesus was teaching at the temple and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. Judas knew and so it was all being set up exactly as Jesus had planned. 
and how tragic it is for Judas to be there, to be served the first communion, and to have missed who Jesus really was, and to have missed the whole point. There's an old southern restaurant, there's only a few of them left in the deep south, called Poe Folks. You may be familiar with it. Poe Folks Restaurant. For a long time, their tagline was, if you ain't hungry, then there ain't nothing on this menu that's going to satisfy you. I, I mean, I kind of like to eat, and so there's sometimes I want to eat, even if I'm not that hungry, right? If it's good enough, I'll eat. But they were pretty clear about, you're going to need to come to this trough hungry. I thought, that's interesting, though, right? What suppresses my appetite for Jesus and reduces this meal to mere empty calories? That, that, that little statement got me thinking. It, was, it came up on a meeting I had this week from some friends who are based in Georgia. They were talking about Poe folks. And then it got me thinking, what makes this empty, unsatisfying? How about serving lesser gods? Idolatry is a thing in my heart that if it's changed or it's taken away, it unravels my identity and crushes my spirit. Um, how about a lifestyle of sin? Um, kind of giving up and just giving in. When I gorge on my own flesh, and frankly, guys, as Brooks mentioned earlier, this, this season we're in, it's easy. It's easy to gorge on your flesh. Things are uncertain. You're looking for anything to comfort, to feel better. So then I feel too guilty to eat. I can't keep it down. Maybe it's pornography. Um, a prideful high when we noticed. Uh, robbing time. Can't go into work. Or maybe getting one over on somebody. Manipulating our way through a relationship. There's a lot of that going on. We can't get away from each other. <laughs> our, most, our most intimate relationships. How we feel almost entrapped sometimes. Drugs, I don't. Rhonda's watching. I've, this has been the best season of my life with you. Maybe you've turned to drugs or alcohol. Probably alcohol is more common, but fear, pursuit, or dependence on money, pursuing fame, popularity, wanting to be admired. All, I don't. What, what is this thing? that you've been feeding. It's going to make this empty. Isolate. Um, neglecting this starves me of the sustenance needed, the grace that I need. It's, it's one of those meals where the less I eat of it, the less hungry I am. But there aren't any Lone Ranger Christians. We've got to stay together. This is all. This is what this is about. And lastly, I'd mentioned what takes this, what takes the flavor away, what takes the, the meaning, robs it is ingratitude. This keeps me from benefiting. Jesus becomes tasteless and unsatisfying when I'm just. It's just not enough. I was thinking about that this week with the children of Israel and how. I mean, God would provide, right? He would. They were thirsty, and he'd make water show up, or the, or the water was 
was uh, uh, bitter, and they'd throw something in it. It would be clean, and then they would be drinkable, and then they would be hungry, and he'd, food would rain from the sky, literally, and, and they wanted protein, so he'd send birds to fall at their feet, and they wanted more water, and rocket comes out of her. I mean, but every moment, there was this ingratitude. It was kind of part of their relationship with him, and it just robbed them. It was tasteless and unsatisfying. Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 2 says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles. That's what we are. This isn't home. We're passing through. Abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. And then in chapter 4, 1 Peter, Live for the rest of your earthly life no longer by human desires, but by the will of God. The health of our very souls is at stake here. So what increases my appetite? If these things suppress my appetite for Jesus and this meal, then what, what increases it? What makes this meal grace-filled and efficacious for me? Well, when I lean on his grace, I need Jesus to supply the divine energy to love God and to love others as he commanded. To confess, to repent, to believe, and to keep coming back to Jesus. Accepting and showing mercy increases my appetite. Extending forgiveness to others. This forgiveness that has been shown to me makes me long for this. Makes me recognize what's happening here. Staring at Jesus increases my appetite for Jesus. He really is that glorious. He is better. Spend time with him. What does that look like? What that looks like reading his word praying and fasting and meditating and giving and, and being in community the best that you can, serving. Remembering increases my appetite and also helps with ingratitude, right? A secret weapon in fighting the drift is also what makes the Eucharist so desirable. Don't ever get over what Jesus did for you. We get over it. We forget. Remember, in just a few minutes, we'll be taking communion together with our families in our homes. So let us consider for a few minutes what's happening when we come to the Lord's table. So understandings vary. I'm not going to get into this. And Jeremy and I talked. We're not creating a doctrinal statement here. But for most of church history, there was nearly universal agreement that in some way, Christ is very present in the elements. How this happens is unknown to us, but the early church simply embraced the antinomy. The early church fathers, and Augustine and later Luther, believed and recognized real presence of Christ in the Lord's table. Not that the elements physically transform into human flesh and literal blood, but that partaking was literal eating and drinking. Luther argued that the body and blood are present in, with, and under the bread and the wine and forming a sacramental union. Calvin, father of the Reformation, also believed that the Lord's Supper fed Christians with spiritual food in union with Christ. He taught that in the meal, believers are nourished by Christ's flesh and his blood, which he saw as an inexplicable mystery, and that the bread and wine are real presence rather than mere symbols or representation. Don't miss the symbols. Don't miss the representation, but don't miss the person present right here in the elements. Jesus desires to be very real to us. 
I don't want to admire what Jesus did for me and not admire him. The focus is on him. My hope is that we would embrace the mystery of the Lord's presence in this meal and to grow in deeper and deeper affection for the Lord Jesus Christ, seeking to be transformed by him into his likeness. Union with Christ is our ultimate purpose. Why do we open our eyes to read the scriptures when we're troubled or designed to grow in virtue? Why do we kneel and close our eyes when we pray? Why do we fast or deprive our bodies when we feel spiritually empty or needy? Why do we enter the water and get wet when we confess our faith in Jesus Christ? It's to align our physical selves with our spiritual selves. This dichotomy is an effect of the fall. But make no mistake, there are uncreated energies transferring to us in these moments. There is perhaps no more powerful conduit of this grace available to the Christian than when we partake of the Lord's body and blood in the Thanksgiving meal of the church. Communion and community are why the church exists. We are incredibly blessed to be a part of a church that's all about Jesus. This isn't just lip service. And believe me, I was skeptical at first. I was trying to, there are, every church is about Jesus. But this is, there's something different here. We're blessed. It's clear from our format, from the service design to how the music is centered to the emphasis on preaching that focuses on the person and work of the real Jesus to the altar call every week, being a plea to believe Jesus more and to partake of the sacraments. This is beautiful. And we're united by this and for Christ, baptized into him and held together by gathering at his table. Polycarp was a second century bishop uh, of the church of Smyrna. He was a church father and he was a direct disciple of John the Apostle. He wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. He said this, The church only realizes its true nature when it celebrates the supper of the Lord, receiving his body and blood in the sacrament. And at every local celebration, right now that means your living room, in your house, at every local celebration of the Eucharist, it is the whole Christ who is present, not just part of him. Therefore, each local community, as it celebrates the Eucharist, Sunday after Sunday, is the church in its fullness. Be encouraged. Jesus is with you. He exists eternally, today, right now, with two complete natures, fully God and fully human, right now. The reality of this is near and dear to me, and it's an incredibly tangible and personal way. I've asked my daughter, Sydney, to come and to share her experience with Christ in the communion meal. Hi, I'm Sydney. I'm just going to give you a very short version of my story. Um, bear with me because I'm a little bit nervous. Um, four years ago, I was a completely different person. Um, I didn't care about the things of God. I didn't really want to care about the things of God, if I'm being honest with you all. Um, I was convincing myself that it didn't matter, and I thought that because I went to church every week and I didn't do anything bad, quote-unquote, um, that that was enough. 
and I thought I was happy living this way. But in reality, I was running away from Christ. Um, there are so many times I remember where someone would try to encourage me with scripture, and I would roll my eyes and get irritated because I thought that I was doing everything right, that I didn't need all the extras. Um, I was cold, callous, and I was apathetic, looking for other things to put my hope in. And I spent 18 years living this way. Um, I used to take communion when it was a holiday or the rare occasion when um, the church I used to go to would partake. Um, my thought process was always just simply remembrance or um, this is the time I have to repent of all my sins, um, which are good reasons, but I didn't know at the time that they weren't the only reasons. Um, so when we found the Axis, it was so weird to me that it was a weekly thing, um, that it was a priority here. I remember our very first week here, um, my family and I, we went to take communion and uh, we were just, we found our little circle and uh, before anyone could even pray, we were just crying because we had never been presented with communion in that way before. Um, the grace side of it before, the part of communion that says that he is near, that he had already forgiven me for running from him, the part that says he wanted me to come back. And I believe wholeheartedly that that moment I was beginning to be transformed and that was um, that God was softening my heart. And this was my posture week after week. Slowly, um, I could tell a change in my attitude, my heart, and my desire for God to change me and to speak to me. And this did not happen by accident. If it were me, I would still be running. So when I take communion, I need to remember what Jesus did for me um, on the cross, but I have to fight against the urge for my thought process to end there. I have to fight against the way it has become almost routine for me. Taking communion is Jesus changing me week after week. It does bring life change. He is present, it is his grace. And I want to encourage you all to fight to believe this too. Thank you, sister. <laughs> don't believe, don't miss this believer. One of the hardest things you may ever do is give yourself completely to Jesus. But it is the best thing you could ever do. It's not one and done for any of us, even if we have trusted Jesus. My hope is for every person watching right now, you would believe. Maybe for the first time, maybe in a deeper way, maybe again, after years of drifting. But this means of grace is part of my own restoration and renewal story. I'm forgiven? What? I'm, I'm fully known and fully accepted? What? <laughs> Jesus made this available to me. And I don't deserve this. And yet he has justified me and I am overwhelmed to get to do this. That's why every Sunday I can't wait for this meal. I would run to this station. I need this grace. You need this grace. We need this. Mark records in his gospel that as Jesus made his way to Jerusalem for the final time, it says Mark 10, verse 32, as he was walking ahead of his followers, the disciples were filled with awe and the people following behind were overwhelmed. Just watching him, does he fill you with awe? 
Does he overwhelm you? I'm pleading with you to stare at this Jesus, to contemplate his grace and his glory, to adore this Jesus, to see his broken body, to see the blood from his wounds, to fall on your knees and receive him this morning. Come, take, eat, drink. I invite you to taste and see that the Lord is good all over again, even for the first time by partaking of the Lord's table together. I ask you at this point to prepare your elements. And although we are unable to gather as a church family, we still invite you to participate in this sacrament in a tangible way wherever you find yourselves. This invitation is extended to believers and we ask that if possible husbands and fathers serve your families and other scenarios serve each other the elements if you're alone please receive this grace vicariously and and then reach out to one of your pastors we will come to you these are the gifts of god for the people of god so take them in remembrance that christ died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving the very act of this taking and eating unites you with Jesus and to each other as his bride in a divine mystery. This is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ poured out for you. And therefore we proclaim the mystery of the faith. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. After I pray for these gifts, please pause for a moment of quiet reflection and gratitude for the resurrection of our Savior Jesus Christ, for his atoning sacrifice and for his reconciling work on our behalf. Oh, God, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for giving us a way to unite our hearts and our spirits with our bodies in union with you. Do your sanctifying work in our hearts, Lord. Transform us not by some intellectual ascent alone, but by uniting what we hear and know and see with what we, what we feel. Now we live. Make this real food and real drink as we unite around your body with each other in all of our local expressions of the church this morning. Please do this, Lord. Amen. This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.